Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as the cold fingers of winter creep down the mountains in Utah. Before we begin, I'll indulge in a quick bit of self-promotion. I have a new Redbubble store. For those that don't know, Redbubble is a service that allows artists to upload their designs for printing on dozens of different media. You can head on over there for matte prints from all my books or to get yourself some fancy Powder Mage swag. Additionally, I'm making just one public appearance this year, and that's at Brandon Sanderson's mini convention in Provo, Utah, on November 22nd and 23rd. I'll be there to chat, and we'll have books to sign and sell. Now on with the show. My guest this week is Kevin Hearn. Kevin is the best-selling author of the urban fantasy Iron Druid series and the epic fantasy Seven Kennings. He also co-writes the Tales of Pell with previous guest Delilah S. Dawson. Kevin and I chat about the mental health benefits of getting out in nature, Kevin's epic fantasy series, the future of Iron Druid, childhood whimsy in our adult lives, travel as inspiration, and so much more. Enjoy my conversation with Kevin Hearn. You moved out of the country a few years back. Yeah, I did. You're in, you're in Canada now. How have you been enjoying it? Oh, I love it. Uh, honestly, it's it's so much more chill. Yeah? Uh, in every in every way, I suppose. Um it does get darn cold in the winter sometimes, and uh, that's when I start to look for, you know, is there a way I can escape to the south? Uh, but other than that, I just really like it up here a lot. Um, one of the things that I've come to appreciate is that if you go out to a restaurant, if you're, <laughs> we could do that again, um, you don't have, like if you're going to pay with a credit card, they bring a little machine out to you rather than take your card away and disappear and do all kinds of shady stuff with it. So yeah, it comes right to the table. You you know you type in whatever you want for uh, your tip. It's usually just a percentage. You can you can put in what you want. Boom, you're done, and you the card never leaves your sight. And I like that. And that I lo- also like that the fact that they call it the machine, yeah, not a terminal or whatever. It's always, do you need the machine? Yes, I do. Thank you. So there's a lot of little differences like that. Yeah, that's such a weird little cultural thing. Like, because I noticed that in Europe as well. And I, weirdly, I noticed that like when I tried to pay with credit cards, everybody had one of those machines, but they were always vaguely annoyed that I asked to pay with a credit card. Yeah. But like in the US, it's like everything is with credit card. So it's kind of a strange cultural difference. Yeah. Well, Canada is very used to it, um, where you're going to be paying with a card and they have a ton, you know, multiple machines per business so that they don't have to wait for somebody else to get done with it. And, um, you know, I I just kind of like that little difference. And of course, I like having health care that I don't have to write a check to an insurance company for (laughs) Um, things like that. It's it's wonderful. Um, still waiting on becoming a citizen, but I'm a permanent resident now. So 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you think, are you going to keep a dual citizenship in the U S or do you think you're going to go straight Canadian? Well, yeah, you, um, in order to, you would have to renounce your U S citizenship. And I, I don't really have a need to do that. Um, that's fine. <laughs> uh, so I'll be, uh, I'll be dual wielding, which is a, you know, a goal, uh, for a <laughs> lot of people, you want to become a dual wielder of passports. So, right. Yeah. Um, that's fun. I, I, I found it amusing because I was I was looking through your Instagram again this morning and I, I found it funny because it looks very much like where I grew up in Cleveland. Yeah. You know, that that very lush greenery everywhere, lots of birds and everything. But I know that you're from Arizona. And yes. so it kind of cracks me up seeing you in a locale that's so different than where you probably spent most of your life. Yeah, I, I really love that part of it. Uh, one of the best things that I've gotten into is nature photography now um, because uh, Chuck uh, was, Chuck Wendig was uh, saying, hey, this is a lot of fun. You should try it. And then once I did, I was like, oh, my God, you're right. Um, you have to put out some cash to get yourself a nice lens, you know, a nice zoom lens, 100 millimeter to 400 millimeter but I've realized um, that it is probably the best investment in my mental health I've ever made because I go out and take these pictures of birds. Then after I'm done walking around in nature, which is itself therapeutic, I get to come home and then start looking through. Did I actually catch anything? You know, <laughs> because, you know, half the time, you know, the birds move so fast. You just got a picture of some leaves, you know, like if a bird's like, haha, missed me. Uh, but then you get some that are just gorgeous and you get to spend time, uh, you know, fixing them up, sharpening them, whatever you do, want in, in uh, the uh, photo editing software. And that's fun, too. So it's a it's a wonderful, relaxing hobby that does no harm to anybody. So I love it. Oh, that, that's very fun. You know, uh, you know, we live in Utah now, but uh, Michelle and I spent our first, gosh, I think first eight years of our marriage back in Ohio where I grew up. And right. we talk a lot about, um, you know, we don't miss the weather because, you know, Ohio <laughs> rains all the time, yeah. but, you know, we're in the high desert now and uh, we don't miss the weather at all, but we do miss kind of that, that very easy, uh, lush nature of like, you know, like a place that was like five minutes from where we lived was this beautiful duck pond with uh, these gorgeous, you know, uh, um, kind of boardwalks and there's beavers and there's, and even though you're in a major metropolitan area, it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. And I, I miss that because you don't really, you know, in, in Utah, you know exactly where you are at all times because of the mountains and there's no trees. <laughs> so yeah. You know, and they just, it doesn't have that kind of diversity of wildlife. I, I do miss that. I, yeah, I, I'm loving that up here. Uh, you, if you were going through my Instagram, you probably saw at some point, I don't know actually if I put it there or not, but uh, we can feed chickadees right out of your hand, you know? They come and land on you and you feel like, a, you know, the Disney princess kind of thing. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, the boardwalks we have up here across the marshy areas, we got muskrats and things like that. And it's just, yeah, so lush. And then, uh, yeah, back in Arizona, you know, you're, you're going to get cactus and, you know, there's a lot a lushness to the Sonora Desert, don't get me wrong. But um, I, I don't miss a lot of that. I, I miss uh, the mountains in Colorado. We spent three years in Colorado. and I really do miss the mountains, but Canada is wonderful for me. Oh, that's great. And I'm glad that you're kind of like being very conscious of the mental health aspect and everything. And I, I, man, there's, there's so much about kind of, I, I, I don't know, at least maybe in my awareness, the last 
few years, I feel like mental health has become much more of a focus for people in general. And I think it's just so good for all of us. Um, and, you know, engaging with nature is one of those things that I think does really well for probably anybody. Yeah, there's actually uh, quite a bit of science building up behind the idea that uh, getting out in nature is really, really good for our mental health and we should do it more often. And uh, yeah, we, we don't probably do it enough. Do you find that um, that the kind of that that trying to be more conscious of your mental health uh, and and do those things that kind of help you with being calm and and uh, maybe Zen like, do you find that helps with your creativity? Yeah, it does, because if I'm really anxious about stuff or uh, worried about something, it, it kind of uh, destroys uh, a lot of my creativity. I have to figure out a way, especially, I mean, you know, very stressful last few years, obviously, for, for uh, you know, many reasons, political and, uh, you know, pandemic reasons and all that kind of stuff. And so you have to figure out a way to um, kind of wall yourself off from that a little bit. One way that I uh, managed to do that was uh, staying a little bit off of social media. I would take breaks for months at a time. Um, and then also another way was going out and into nature quite a bit. Um, <laughs> even when I was on social media, I would, uh, limit my interaction in a certain way. So, yeah. uh, you just, I'm going to share some photos. I'm not going to talk about whatever the, you know, the, the boiling topic is of today where everybody hates somebody who said something silly. Uh, I don't want to participate in any of that. I'm just going to Here's a cool bird I found, you know, hope you guys are yeah. having a good one. <laughs> I, I, I think that's great. I, I tried to do something similar myself. I, I, I slip up occasionally and kind of, you know, say opinions online, which is always a bad idea, <laughs> but I, I try to keep it to, you know, like pictures of things I like and, you know, my pets and the, th the food I'm eating and stuff like that. But st dumb self-promotion things that you know generally isn't going to get anybody riled up too much right i i've always been a fan of your uh grilling and smoking endeavors and, uh, <laughs> your, your pictures of meat yes uh, are you those are great yeah it's it's fun it's it's one of those like things that you know i i reached a point at which i realized i didn't have that many hobbies like i played a lot of video games but you know video games is almost like I played so many video games, it was almost like a lifestyle rather than a hobby, which is not healthy. But yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I realized, you know, I, I want to get a smoker and I want to like, you know, I want to try to learn how to make these things in a really good way. You know, not just, you know, get a fancy piece of meat, throw it in the oven and then serve it to the family. I wanted to like figure out, okay, how do I do this in a way that's interesting and, you know, subtle and, and I can learn to appreciate it a little bit more and, um, and I, you know, it's, it's kind of fun and is one of those things I talked to, uh, Bob Salvatore for an episode a couple of weeks ago and, yeah. uh, you know, and he, he was talking about going vegan and I, I have so much respect for people that are able to do that. And I, yeah. I, I want to kind of pare down on the amount of meat I consume for, you know, both health and ethical reasons, but I love meat so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're, you're good at doing it. And, and the fact that you can, uh, kind of explore and deep, do a deep dive into a thing you love. I mean, that's, that's great. You know, you got to pick something like that and go for it. And, uh, um, so I'm into the photography thing. And then also, um, I was getting into making my own craft cocktails, uh, you know, during the pandemic a little bit. 
because uh, you couldn't go out and, you know, couldn't go out anymore and have a bartender do it for you. So, you, you know, if you want to do anything besides, you know, what comes in a can, you got to learn how to do something. So that has been kind of fun because of uh, recently getting into making my own syrups. Yeah. And um, the one that I was really surprised by was a cherry blossom tea syrup. Oh. So, yeah, you're you're making you're, basically you're making cherry blossom tea and adding a lot of sugar in to make a syrup out of it and uh then using that in mixed drinks has been really delightful. That's really fun. I did last year. I did um I made my own raspberry syrup and canned uh, just a few bottles of it. Um and and it was very tasty. We used it for uh um Italian sodas. It it oh. turned out dang good. And honestly, the only reason I don't use it more often is because I'm trying to not have as much sugar in my diet. <laughs> but gotcha. it's so dang good. Oh, that does sound great. Are you still keeping bees? You know what? Last winter, my I had two hives and both of them died over the winter. Oh, um, yeah. We had kind of a, a weird winter with lots of ups and downs, temperatures and some really cold temperatures. And they just they didn't make it through. And I've been so busy this last year that, that I just, I didn't, I didn't get around to replacing them. And, and I, I mean, I've still got, you know, however, you know, much kind of equipment for all the beekeeping stuff, but I, I don't know when I'm going to get back to it. You know, maybe in the spring, if the, if it strikes me, but um, it's one of those hobbies that requires very little work, except for like all of your attention a couple weekends a year. And I, I struggle finding that like little bit of time where you're like, okay, my whole weekend is, you know, a honey harvest or, you know, I'm going to take, you know, five hours to get, you know, get in and clean all of the equipment really well, you know, and, and all that stuff. And I, I need to get back to it. It's a fun kind of sustainable hobby. Uh, but I, I got very frustrated by my hives both dying and I, uh, we'll, we'll see if I get back to it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear about that, but I hope you do get back to it because uh, that that was joyful to to see uh, that thing going on, that whole process. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's it's cool to kind of you know learn you know what you know because kind of kind of kind of as I'm getting a little bit older, kind of learn what I like and what I don't like, and you know like like getting the bees was kind of a childhood thing for me. It was something I I I had this uh, this guy that. Uh, went to my church, this old German dude, uh, Dieter, who my, my mom, you know, kind of, uh, would go over and hang out with his wife and Dieter would take me down to his workshop, uh, where he built like remote control cars, you know, the gas powered ones, you know, this is back in the nineties before that was like a little bit more widely available. Um, and he'd custom build things like that. And, and he kept bees. And I, even as a little kid, I thought that was the coolest thing. And, and I'd always wanted to do it. And, uh, and so getting bees was like a, okay, you know, I, I could afford this now. Maybe I should give it a try. And, and it is a fun, it is a fun hobby. It's kind of cool to, to learn how, you know, the, you know, the, like kind of the environmental system around you works and, yeah and all of that stuff. Fantastic. I, you ever notice that, I don't know, you, you mentioned getting older and of course, I have a little bit of experience with that too. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's interesting though, like as you get older, uh, you realize that um, you're not as concerned with what is or isn't cool anymore. You just don't care. Be, you know, when you're younger, you are kind of consumed with, with, with caring about what's cool. And even if you say you don't care, 
the people who did that were aggressively not caring. So they really did care. You know what I mean? About what was cool. So, and, and now as you're older, you're just like, you know what? Everybody's going to like what they like. I'm happy for those people who like that thing that I don't care about. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm allowed to, to do my thing and nobody's going to really care either. So it, it's, it, there's a little bit more freedom just getting in, getting older and not caring about what's cool anymore. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's, it is. Yeah. Freedom is the right word. It's like, it's a personal freedom though. Like a, a very like internal freedom of like, Oh, you know, this is like a weight off of my like emotional shoulders. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was weighing down on you when you were younger and you didn't even realize it. And then one day it's like you shrugged off that heavy jacket or whatever. It's like, ah, this is nice. Yeah. I'm going to do what makes me happy rather than what I think other people, you know, uh, perceive to be happy, you know? And it's a large part of it's just noticing when you're happy. Like like, if you're happy about something like, wait, what's what's going on right now? How can I duplicate this? And and then if it was not something that used to make you happy, but now you're noticing it that it does, um, you know, sometimes I think that slips by us. We're momentarily happy and and then we don't realize, wow, we could have been doing that all along, (laughs) you know? So uh, I'm starting to notice more. And, and I think that's part of the, the mental health thing that, uh, you know, just circling back to that idea um, is uh, just noticing what does work for you uh, and, and uh, avoiding the stuff that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Very much so. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Um, what have you been working on these days with your books? Oh gosh. Um, right now I'm working on a curse of Krakens, which is the third book of my epic fantasy trilogy. And, uh, yeah, so that's called the seven Kennings. It starts with the plague of giants. And, uh, the second book is the blight of black wings. And those are both out now. So I'm trying to get that sucker finished. And, uh, then I've got uh, – after that, I'm going to be working on the third book of the Ink and Sigil series. So um, 
that that's what I've got on deck for a while. I've also got a novella to write and a short story for an anthology. So um, I've got some, you know, stuff in the hopper, uh, so to speak. Uh, and uh, then also what's happening is uh, next year I have a reissue of the Iron Druid Chronicles coming out. They're going to reissue the whole series and trade paperback with new covers. I saw that. That's like a, a like a 10th anniversary celebration kind of thing, right? Yeah. The fact that I even get to celebrate a 10th anniversary with a new edition <laughs> is just blowing me away. So uh, thank you, everybody, for reading. I really appreciate it. But uh, I'm also getting to do with these 10th anniversary editions, I'm, I'm getting to do some slight modifications to the text, just like, you know how typos will creep in. Um, and then you're like, all right, we're going to get rid of those. And, uh, also, though, we're going to add in bonus material for the print readers that was never there before. Um, we uh, we had like bonus short stories and novellas that we were including with eBooks or maybe even selling separately as eBook and audio, but they had never been in print before. So we're now going to include them with the 10th anniversary editions. So each novel will have extra goodies um, in the back. So I, I'm, I'm excited for that as well as the new covers. It's uh, They're going to be gorgeous. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Very fun. Oh, I was just going to say, they're going to come out like in all next year. So uh, March, you'll have the first three. And then in June, you'll have the second three. And then the last four will come out in September. Oh, wow. So it's not going to be staggered or anything. It's just like straight up the entire series. Yeah, the entire series will be coming out um, next year in these trade paperbacks with the new covers by Sarah Coleman. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Dang, that's really fun. So so I know that you're still writing inside the universe, but are you done with the main kind of the main uh, plot line? Well, the Iron Druid Chronicles is narrated by Atticus, and that one is done, yes. Um, but then the Ink and Sigil series is in the same universe. We have a different narrator, but then Atticus and Oberon still show up. So, um, yeah, it's kind of just continuing the story, but we're now focusing on a different magic system and focusing on some different problems uh, in the universe. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a great time with it. I love the new characters. And then uh, whenever I bring in the old ones, it's always fun to uh, play with old friends, you know? Right. It, it totally is. It's like, a, it's, it does feel, I, I'm working on, I'm trying to cram in a Powder Mage novella right now. And, uh, and I was writing it le- yesterday. Uh, and, and I, it's, it's weird going back to something that, I mean, I've only been away from Powder Mage for gosh, three years now, I think is when I last was writing in it um, actively. And um, it, it's but it's weird to go back to it and be like oh man these are like my old buddies you know it's like it's like being like a being like a teenager and dusting off the you know the toys that you played with when you were a kid that you find in the attic you know you're like oh look at that (laughs) yeah exactly uh do you do you still have any of your old like action figures from when you were a little wee person so i still have a couple boxes of legos um, my, my, my mom, my mom let my nieces and nephews, you know, quote unquote, play with my Legos when I was in college and half of them disappeared, ah. uh, which, you know, unsurprisingly, um, but I, I still have a couple boxes of those. Uh, I used to have a massive crate of my GI Joes, the, the ones from the, the early nineties, late eighties that were the three and a half inch ones. Um, and I actually made the heartbreaking, but 
probably right decision uh, <laughs> to give them to my buddy Dan Wells, who's a horror author. Um, and he's got six kids. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I, these are sitting in my garage. I don't have kids. I would love to see someone play with them again. That's like way more important to me than kind of the nostalgia of keeping them on hand. And I definitely went through and picked out about a dozen of the figures that had like kind of emotional sentimentality to me. And I kept those and I gave everything else to Dan. Oh, that's nice. That's cool. Uh, at, at this point, when I buy an action figure, I'm just basically planning on on how to uh, pose it with a book that I'm reading for later for social media. You know, like uh, here's a book and here, here's also Morpheus sitting in his chair, you know. I just have fun with that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, the purpose of action figures. Uh, most of the time, they're just on the shelf collecting dust. But every so often, their action will be to pose heroically with the book. <laughs> do you uh, do you still have any from your own childhood? I don't anymore. Or if I do, they're in storage that I'm not aware of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in theory, they could be out there. I know that at one point I still had the original Star Wars action figures from Kenner. Oh, uh, from yeah. the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't think I really have them anymore. If I do, that you know, they're they're definitely in storage and forgotten at this point. So. My, my oldest brother, I think, is right at your age. Um, and when I was, I think, about three or four, bef- long before I knew what Star Wars was, I loved playing with his action figures. Um, you know, I now know, looking back, that those were the originals and they were, like, kind of a big deal. And <laughs> I have a very distinct memory of getting grabbing, getting my hands on one of his stormtroopers, one of his original stormtroopers, and a uh, black permanent marker, and... He didn't speak to me for weeks after that. <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen some really clever uh, Instagram accounts where they're doing all of these posed, you know, things uh, with, with action figures, Star Wars in particular, and uh, they're making, they're using food and uh, to to simulate explosions and lasers and things like that, uh, like spaghetti, like a bunch of spaghetti coming out of a jar if it's tightly packed and then you know certain uh what are, what do you call them strings of spaghetti are are uh, sticking out uh like they're lasers or something and <laughs> your your character is dodging through them i i love stuff like that and so uh i i hope to see some more yeah. and follow those kinds of accounts um if i was that creative with uh, with that uh, i'd probably do more with my action figures but uh, uh, I'm, I'm so glad people are finding things to do with them besides just make pew, pew, pew noises, you know, <laughs> it's, it is fun to see like that sort of, I don't know, childhood whimsy creep into our adult lives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that I love that kind of thing. Uh, right now that like the figure, I guess that I, uh, I, I actually, uh, just adore and kind of, uh, pay a lot of attention to is actually like a plushie that, but with a computer chip in it makes noise. It's a loath cat, uh, you know, from the Star Wars Rebels uh, yeah. series. And uh, apparently you they're not sold in stores. You have to get them at Disney World or Disneyland. And uh, Deanna Rayborn, who's, uh, you know, like a, a mystery author, was super kind. And she bought me a loath cat and shipped it to me. Uh, I, I'm still geeked out that she did that. <laughs> and uh, it turns out it it's because her husband likes my books that, and I'm like, yay. <laughs> yeah, that, 
that's always the best shortcut, right? <laughs> uh, right, right. So, so I, I was uh, super happy, and I love the loath cat. When you pet it, it starts doing meow. You know, doing various noises. Yeah. But then, what what's cool about it, which which startled me, uh, you know, the first couple of times it did it, is that it waits and then it'll meow again because you're not petting it. <laughs> right so so i'm like whoa it brings your attention back to it just like a real cat will sometimes so um i thought that was a lot of fun now i forget do you have pets i i do um at the moment uh we have a cat and then we have a kitten who is uh, staying with us and uh, recuperating from a sort of uh, uh a mysterious malaise uh but it's a uh, uh, a, a shelter kitty oh. uh, that my kid adopted and, um, you know, a lot of shelter animals have, you know, issues of one kind or another. Uh, and, and so uh, we're nursing the kitty back to health and then uh, we're, you know, going from there. But yeah, uh, unfortunately, during the pandemic, my, my dogs passed away oh. um, and uh, I, I just we haven't, uh, you know, replaced them. Um, and uh so now we just have the cat at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. We, we lost, uh, right before the pandemic, we, we lost two of our dogs and, uh, sorry. And it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's that weird roughness and we're, we're still, you know, we had, we had three dogs for a little bit and, and our cat and, uh, and we're still, so we just have the one cat and the one dog and, and we kind of go back and forth on, oh, do we get another dog? You know, like, what do we, where do we want to be here? Like, you know, if we get another dog, that means we can't like, you know, go, you know, live in Europe in a few years if we want to, you know, there's like little tiny options we're trying to figure out and, uh, but we keep going back and forth on it. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. The, the, it's honestly a reason why we haven't gotten new dogs is because when travel restrictions are a little bit, uh, not necessarily relaxed, but, um, I, I guess just when it makes a little bit more sense to go traveling, uh, we would like to. And so, yeah. uh, uh, dogs will definitely make that a little bit more difficult. So uh, we're probably not going to get any dogs in the near future. We'd like to do a little bit of traveling, see some places we haven't seen yet. Yeah, it's definitely, that's definitely on our list. We're, ho- we're hoping next year we'll get back out and travel. In fact, the last, I think, big trip I had, I actually saw you in London like four years ago or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was wild. Um, that was, that was a pretty good time. Um, and uh, I, I wish that I could get back to Scotland, um, and I want to head out to uh, Iceland as well because I've never been, and I would love to. Um, my best friend, uh, he he goes on about uh, Iceland. He said that it was it was just a fantastically beautiful trip. Um, that's definitely one I'd love to hit yeah, for sure. Uh, what you got someplace else you want to go? Oh, uh, so I mean, so many. Like I, I like I want to do like a, a castle tour of Germany. You know, I want to go to France and I want to see all the cool stuff I've read about in all these, like, you know, both historical and adventure novels for since Ooh. I was a little kid, you know, uh, there's, I, there's a bunch of places I want to go to. I want to visit Portugal and Spain and yeah, I- Italy. We had a, I've mentioned on this podcast a few times that we had a big Italy trip planned with a, a group of my high school friends uh, and then the pandemic hit. And it was, we were going to have two weeks in Italy with a huge group of us. And it would, it had taken so much planning to get everybody's schedules aligned and then the pandemic and it screwed everything up. Oh man, that's a bummer. I hope you get back there. Uh, I, uh, I spent about five days in Rome, uh, about, uh, four or five years ago and it was lovely. 
Um, yeah, that's great. The pigeons, however, watch out, man. They, <laughs> they are, yeah, they, they, they have refined their hunting techniques. They know who the tourists are and who's not guarding their food well, mm-hmm. and they will come down and forcibly take it. And, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll be sick. And then everybody will laugh at you, you know, cause they're, so, uh, yeah, watch out. They're, they're, they're terrors out there. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> so do you think, do you think like travel is almost a necessity for an author? Uh, well, I don't, I wouldn't say it's a necessity. I mean, uh, just because I, there, there are all, so many exceptions to any kind of rule you wish to make in writing, you know what right. I mean? Um, but, um, I find that it helps me a lot personally. Uh, so speaking only for myself, I find travel to be a necessity. Um, it, it always stimulates my creativity and I am really jazzed to write when I return from travel. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel tremendously stimulated. And part of this is just because of the way your, your brain works. Um, it is always stimulated by seeing something new and on a smaller scale, it works to break up whatever writer's block you might be having. Let's just go out and drive around a part of the city I've never been to before, part of the, the country, you know, take a new hiking trail or a bike path or something. And, and then you're going to feel refreshed because your brain has been stimulated to, you know, by, by seeing and classifying, you know, new stuff. And it, it jogs loose to the, the old neurons and synapses. And I, I think it, it always helps. Uh, I find myself more creative after seeing something new. Yeah. I, I, and I think that I, you kind of touched on it. Like there's a spectrum there, like of, of influence, I suppose of like, of, cause, cause you'll see something cool, like a castle or something that's inspiring, like very directly, but also you just, I don't know, you, you see other people and you like, even if you don't talk to them, you see kind of the variety of humanity and you just, you overhear conversations and you, you get to walk around and kind of get the blood pumping. And I don't know, there's so much about, you know, like getting out and like, I've just even <laughs> on a very teeny tiny scale, like the last week I've every afternoon just to get me out of my own head, I've been driving to kind of a parking lot nearby and then just sitting in my car and writing on my tablet. And honestly, just sitting there and watching people come in and out of stores and, you know, you know, hearing other people's voices and things like that. It's, it's just, there's something about that, that, that makes my brain kind of get out of its like malaise of just sitting in my office all the time. Absolutely. One of the, like, I got an example for you that was kind of, uh, when I, I got to visit Poland and the same trip, I got to go to Italy. I, I, I hit a few European countries at the same time. While I was in Poland, I noticed a couple of things. They're not really into franchises there. It's really mom and pop, you know, small business kind of things going on there. So every place you go is going to have its own unique personality, which is a lot of fun. The other thing they're into is scarves. Yeah. They wear, almost everybody seems to be wearing a scarf and they wear them fashionably. So um, I, I was I was just uh, at a cafe that was, again, not a, it, it was, you know, a mom and pop kind of place. And uh sitting by the window and just watching people go by and all of these scarves and the way they wore them. Some of them were piled really high so that you only saw their eyes above the scarf, you know, kind of thing. And um, I thought that that was a fascinating, you know, cultural idiosyncrasy. Um, And then the place itself uh, that I was in had a grog menu. 
And I'd never seen that. Like, you know, because in the United States, it's like grog. Well, that's what pirates drink, matey. <laughs> and that's why we're going to have our grog. But but in Poland, it's much more of a, a normal thing. So they not only have your basic grog, there are there's a whole grog menu. And I found this like on my last day in Poland, and I was so disappointed I hadn't found it on my first day in Poland because I would have tried them all. Um, they they uh, bring out a, a large 24-slash-36-ounce mug of hot tea, only half filled, mm-hmm. and then they bring out a bunch of stuff to dump into it, you know, the, part of that being the rum, and then, uh, you know, various fruits or whatever, spices to make your grog. and. Oh, such a cool experience, you know, it's like you never have that experience in the United States. And, you know, there are so many experiences like that unique little things that, that are waiting for us if we do get to travel. And so uh, I think uh, being able to travel is in a lot of ways, the ultimate freedom. Yeah. I, uh, I, I had a similar experience when I went to Hungary. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in Budapest and I, I go with my translator to grab a drink and, and we we kind of open up the menu, and I was very surprised that like this massive menu had like a couple of beer options, and then an entire page of lambics, oh. which I had uh, you know like in the U.S. There's like at least you know a few years ago, there's like one brand of lambics that you can find in most places, and no others. And there's just this huge variety, and I'm like, oh, this is these are these are so tasty, like they're so good, and that's what they like uh, I, I, I probably proven wrong by somebody but that, that seemed to be what they drank at least in this restaurant and it was just fun to like see a totally different kind of perspective on you know just drinking and and what what people enjoy you know that's that's outside of our own you know experience yeah uh, speaking of different perspectives on drinking i'm going to give a shout out to mallory omira's book and i know you had her on uh, a few episodes ago but yeah, girly drinks. I've read it. It's so fucking good. Yeah, it's very fun. Yeah, it, it, the most entertainingly written history I've ever read, and I wish it, I wish all histories were written that way, you know. Um, but yeah, for those of you who don't know, girly drinks is a, a a look at the role of women in alcohol and drinking culture uh, from ancient times to today. And it is absolutely fascinating. It's on sale now. You should buy it. Yeah. Well, it's it's fun because like the, something that I came to very late in life was because uh, I was raised Mormon uh, without alcohol in the house yeah. at all was that kind of drinking culture isn't just drinking. It's a social thing. And, and when you're raised without alcohol in the house, you don't really understand that. You kind of look at you know, people drinking as, Oh, that's a, that's a thing that they're doing. That's not, you know, it's a, it's a bad thing that they're doing. Um, but you, there's a point at which you realize, Oh, this is actually like a, it's just like food. It's a, it's a very social sort of, it's an interactive thing. Um, and yes, it can be unhealthy just like overeating, but it's, it's very much something that is, that facilitates conversation and community interaction that I really find quite cool. Yeah, I, I dig it. Uh, I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, because of the development of cocktails and how uh, incredibly delicious they can be, uh, that that is every bit as much of a craft as, you know, a chef yeah. uh, doing their thing. So um, there are new uh, in, you know, combinations and uh, things being made all the time. 
and uh, not just in distilling, but in in uh, brewing as well. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff to enjoy. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a great part of uh, of I, I guess gustatory culture. And uh, there you go. I, I I should get a bonus point for using gustatory in a sense. You <laughs> you definitely should. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember if I had met you previously, but I, I think it was the very first time we met. I have a very distinct memory of of my editor, Davey, kind of directing me to this dark corner of the convention room <laughs> of the convention hall's restaurant, where you were on a little laptop with a drink the size of your face. <laughs> Just kind of hunched over doing a little writing under the stairs, you know, out of the way with this massive drink. And Davey goes, I want you to meet Kevin. Kevin's the best. You should go meet Kevin. And she comes over and then I kind of hung out with you the rest of the day. And it was just, I kind of, I love that memory of you with this, just like, no kidding. Like it was like 10 inches across one of those massive, uh, cocktails with the sugar all around the sides yeah to, to be fair we were in texas and that's the size of drinks in texas <laughs> uh yeah i remember that that was that was something else uh and at the time i i you know davy brought not just you but some other people over to meet me i think that was part of the fun for her that day is like hey wait let hey come over here i want to show you this guy <laughs> and, and so yeah she brought folks over to meet me and it was really sweet of her and um, yeah, I got to meet uh, a lot of fun folks that way. That was a, a, a great uh, time. So uh, that was a that was in San Antonio, I think. Yeah, I believe it was. I think it was Worldcon, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that was the first and last one I ever went to, honestly. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, but it was a great experience because you know you you do meet uh, so many folks, and then um, you know if you ever get to see him again, it might be at a different Comic Con or another World Comic. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a great experience. Yeah. Now, I was curious about something because you kind of made your bones in the industry doing urban fantasy mm-hmm. with, you know, kind of the very straightforward urban fantasy sort of uh, the the very quick uh, single point of view, um, all of that. And then you kind of jumped over with uh, Seven Kennings to massive multi-point of view epic fantasy. And I'm I'm very curious where that switch came from. Were you... Was it a very purposeful, I want to do something very different than what I've been working on? Uh, yeah, there was a lot uh, going into that. And uh, in, in fact, actually, that that uh, that massive multi-point of view kind of, you know, very complicated structural sort of thing was something that I had tried to do and failed to do before I wrote the Iron Druid stuff. Yeah. So uh, the, the bare bones of it had actually gestated earlier, uh, but I did not have the writing chops to actually pull it off at when I was first starting out. So you, you write a few Iron Druid books. And then if, you know, as you progress in the Iron Druid books, I do start to uh, narrate in different voices mm-hmm. within that series. And so you do have multiple points of view in the Iron Druid uh, Chronicles as well. But that was also learning for me, you know, to figure out how do I do this so that then I could make the jump to try this where I had uh, 11 different first person points of view telling a story that still was a cohesive yeah. whole. So structurally, as far as I know, I, I I still don't know if anybody else has done that with epic fantasy because epic fantasy is usually in third person or if it is first person. 
it's much fewer than a right. <laughs> and and I was shocked yeah. uh, at just how many that you went for, and it was. It it yeah. seems so ambitious, kind of you know, compared to you know, Iron Druid is just fantastic, but it doesn't have that kind of ambition of breadth, you know. Um, and I just, I, I to this day, I still kind of think about that occasionally. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, and uh, it was partially uh, because I wanted to bring the, uh, you know, there was a bard basically. For those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, there is a bard who is telling the story of this war from all of these different uh, points of view that he has collected. And um, he's doing this to a sea of refugees outside of a city. And uh, he's doing it to sort of kind of entertain them, but also let them understand why are you refugees right now? What the heck happened to bring you here to this terrible uh, point in, in your own personal history? And uh, that kind of epic scope uh, and the idea of somebody telling you a bit of a story of a much longer story, a little bit each night, that came from Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Um, I was always fascinated by the idea that he took those books of the Iliad and Odyssey and performed them a book at a time over a campfire, uh, you know, uh, each night to some folks. And I thought, well, is there a way for me to take that ancient experience and make it happen for modern yeah. readers. So that was what I was kind of trying to do is like, how do I take that, uh, take the original sort of epic and update it for a modern time. And uh, so Plague of Giants is what resulted and, uh, you know, continue to blight of black wings. And then, yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm working on a curse of Krakens now. Is it going to be a closed out series or, or a closed out trilogy? I mean, yeah, it is going to be closed out. Um, and uh, it, it's this last volume is uh, comp very complicated because of all of the various threads that I have to sort of tie together here. Uh, and then also figure out the, the other thing that's been happening, of course, is a jump back and forth in time because, there's a present day drama going on uh, at the city where all the refugees are. And, you know, the bard is telling what has happened up to this point. So he jumps back in the past, you know. So what what's happening, though, is the bard is basically bringing everybody up to the point where, okay, we're now in the present day. Yeah. So when that happens, then there has to be a change again of how the narration occurs because we're, we're no longer going back and forth. So – Figuring that out was fun. And so, yeah, I've got it. I've got it uh, all outlined now and about 67,000 words as of this moment of the drafting. And uh, yeah, so I got a little ways to go. It's going to be a few more months, but, uh, you know, progress is being made and, um, you know, you won't have to, to wait uh, too much longer, hopefully, before I'm able to give a publication date. Oh, that's very cool. Do, do you find that you enjoy the the kind of the challenge of that complexity? Oh, I do. I very, very much do. Um, for, I mean, it for uh, for me personally, as you know, it, from a professional standpoint, this series is my baby. It's the thing that I'm always going to be most proud of because um, I'm doing something that hasn't been done before structurally. So um, that's what I am, am proud of. Uh, now. I am also very proud of the urban fantasy stuff um, for different reasons, you know, uh, and I enjoy writing them. They're a lot of fun to write. Um, but this one is sort of, uh, you know, the epic fantasy is the one that I've really kind of wanted to always finish from the very beginning of starting to be a writer, you know. 
And uh, it just took me a very, very long time, decades, to get to the point where I could actually make it work. So it took a lot of practice. Do you kind of, um, when, you're, when you're writing, do you kind of look at, at what you're doing in very self-contained chunks? And what I mean by that is, do you, do you plan your, I guess, your career beyond the series that, or series or multiple series that you're working on at the time? Oh, not really other, other than the fact that I just hope I continue to have one, you know what I mean? I just, I'm, I'm, I hope that people will continue to want to uh, read whatever it is I'm writing. I've been obviously, uh, you know, super fortunate so far to have written some things that people liked and it allows me to write more. So I hope that I just continue to, you know, to be able to do that. I still get uh, mail uh, on the Iron Druid stuff because people continue to, to just discover it, you know. Um, even though it's been out for 10 years, there are people who, for whom it's entirely new. And so they'll write to me and tell me how much they enjoyed it. Like that makes my day. Thank you so much. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope I continue to write things that, you know, people are entertained by. And, um, but I don't have a specific plan other than, all right, what's the next story I want to tell, you know? So how about you? I mean, are you, are you planning some things, uh, down the road? You know, I, I think that it, and I think that the reason I asked my the question in the way I did is because I think that I kind of plan in terms of 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 a chunk of my career in terms of okay this is the series that I am going to be working on for X amount of time probably you know it's always an estimate right and I don't really I don't really move on from there until I'm getting close to the end of whatever I'm currently working on like I I started planning my next epic fantasy is uh, Glass Immortals and that's out next year. But I started planning that probably while working on book six of Powder Mage. Um, and so I, I, was, I knew that I was closing out on Powder Mage. I knew that I didn't want to get under contract for another Powder Mage universe item. And so I started kind of planning what, what other universe do I want to kind of play with? And it, it, it was kind of, I, I'm not sure how I'll approach that in the future because it was a little distracting, you know, at times to be like, well, I've got this kind of shiny new idea in the back of my head. Um, and and people, I think when they read the new series, they're going to see some things that I was testing out in book six of Powder Mage that wound up being much bigger part of what goes on in the new universe that I've got. And, uh, you know, a little bit more of kind of, you know, a little bit of the political fantasy intrigue, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and just me kind of, uh, experimenting with where to go with characters and things like that. But, but yeah, I guess I, I don't plan it out in terms of, okay, here's my five-year plan. Cause you know, like a traditional, a traditional kind of career is, oh, well, I want to be manager in five years. I want to, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward, you know, I'm going to finish my apprenticeship in three years or whatever. You kind of have an idea of, of scope, but when you're writing, it's, it's so much, it's so much different because, you know, for one thing, a book may take you two, three years longer than you think it will. And another thing, you know, you just, with that creativity, it's it's so much more nebulous than than okay if I cross you know dot all my eyes cross all my T's for the next five years I'll get a promotion. It's so weird how different kind of what we do is from I guess what you would think of as a classic career. Um, but I I don't know I try to keep in some perspective and still think of it as you know this is my life it is my career but it's so much different you kind of have to it's it's a weird perspective to take on it. Yeah, it, well, 
I was actually discussing with some folks uh, fairly recently how um, we are really super conditioned as we are growing up to tie our self-worth to having a traditional job. And now that we don't have traditional jobs, there's not a lot of uh, advice on how to do that well and plan it well, other than, you know, some, some people who, you know, may have had a career for a few decades as a writer, but, you know, the publishing industry is no longer what it was when they began. And so their advice might not work for today's current market. I mean, even in the time that I've been doing this, when I first started, it was like, uh, hey, get a blog, start a blog. And now it's like, what, a blog? You know, nobody cares about blogs now. I mean, there are some who, who blogs that are just fantastic and continue to work very, very well and are fantastic stuff. But I never really, I still have a blog myself, but I rarely update it, maybe two, three times a year. And uh, mostly it's Twitter and Instagram. For a while, I was trying every social media thing to say, well, you know, what's what's going to work? How am I going to reach people? But now you're not sure does you know, do those move the needle at all? And if they do, how much? It's very difficult to quantify. It, it, just, it just becomes a thing where I'd like to, I'm, I'm always here to talk to folks who wish to speak to me, but I can't go out uh, and stay on social media a lot if I want to get anything done. So all of those kinds of things that are now part of the career of, of a writer is a lot of it is, you know, self-promotion and marketing somehow. How does a person who began in the in publishing with a career 30 years ago really, you know, talk about that and give advice for career planning when things are mutating so fast right now? There's there's no way that their uh, well, no way that their marketing uh, expertise anyway is going to be relevant at this point unless they're seriously, you know, excellent at it. Uh, and another thing you're supposed to do is have a newsletter, you know, and I've got one of those that I send out every month. But uh, yeah, it, it's 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 wild how uh, for a while newsletters were not the thing and now they're the thing again. And uh, you just don't know. You have to constantly adapt. So it's difficult to know what to do with a career. I think it's a, a great, uh, you know, question you brought up there. How do we do this correctly? I have no idea. <laughs> well, and it's you're kind of going back to like the measure of worth. You know, it's it's tough because you as an author, you, you start, uh, at least I, I know it happened to me, you start kind of connecting your self-worth, you know, to your career, but your career is broken. Uh, your career is like, is told through your book sales numbers, right? And that's kind of mm-hmm. stupidly stressful to, because you just, you just like, you have to somehow conceptualize that, okay, I spent one year, two year, three years of my life on this particular book. And then how many people are actually going to read it? Um, because, and, and you, you kind of, uh, you hit the, the times list fairly early in your career. Did, did you find that once you hit the times list, you, you were stressed out about subsequent books doing just as well? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you worry that, uh, you're, it was a flash in a pan kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you'll, you'll never hit that again, whatever. So yeah, it, it, whether you hit it once, then you're, you're concerned about, you know, you're stressed about, you know, whether you're going to hit it again. And then if you don't hit it, then you are stressed about whether you ever will. I mean, no matter what you, you have a stress about, you know, these really sort of silly lists. Um, what I've tried to do now um, is, uh, for example, the seven Kennings thing, you know, where I'm spending far more time writing the books 
than I do for any of my urban fantasy things. Uh, they don't sell as well as my urban fantasies do, uh, although they do very well and they have, you know, they're a, a really dedicated uh, fan base that, that writes to me and keeps asking, when's the next one coming? But um, it, it's it's always a thing where like the the value is not my sales numbers. The, this this very important series to me does not hold its value on how many folks are are reading it. Um, I'm glad that I have a dedicated fan base for it, and they want to find out how the story ends because I do too, and that's wonderful. But it's it, yeah, you can't really if you do attach your self worth to the sales numbers, then uh, you're probably asking for some uh, pretty rough sailing. Yeah. <laughs> And emotionally, you know, because even the biggest authors can have their ups and downs. It's a roller coaster. And, you know, maybe to somebody like us, you know, like, oh, selling 1 million or 2 million, you know, copies seems like there's no difference, you know, for maybe like the biggest of authors. But I'm sure that a big author that sells 2 million and then the next book sells 1 million, that's half. I'm sure that they just freak out inside. Yeah. It, it's interesting. you got to kind of try to keep perspective on these things. Yeah, that would be a, 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 an interesting, you know, having to to have. <laughs> you know, uh, gosh, I, I, I wish my uh, only half of my previous book is still a million. I mean, that wow, that's, that's yeah. a lot. So um, I, I'm hoping that, uh, yeah, I do try to keep a perspective on everything. And um, I'm very grateful for people who, uh, help me reestablish that perspective because they'll say, "Hey, this particular part of this particular book was really helpful to me." Um, I've got, I've had you know fan mail from folks um, saying, "You know, I got to read this with my dad while you know he was recuperating in the hospital or something like that." It just really helped us and, and helped us get closer or something like that. I'm like, "Wow, that's so much cooler than thinking about whether I sold X number of copies one week." You know, so um, that yeah, you really can't tie your your self-worth to things like that, even though, unfortunately, the bottom line is what, you know, fuels a lot of decision-making. Right, right. Now, you kind of, you, before becoming an author, you were an English teacher for high schools. Yeah. What, do you ever, do you, do you miss that? Do you miss like kind of the the job and going and, you know, teaching kids and things like that? I do miss teaching. Uh, I don't miss taking (laughs) it. And I don't, I don't miss faculty meetings. (laughs) Um, you know, those were always a waste of my time, but, uh, yeah, I miss the kids. And, um, I, I love that the job was different every day, which is also the same for now. You know, uh, every day I'm doing something new with my writing, but you know, every day, even if you're teaching the same stuff from year to year, like, Hey, I'm going to teach, you know, Romeo and Juliet again. It doesn't matter that even if you're teaching the same thing, the kids are going to react differently and they're going to say something to crack you up or, you know, it's just... Uh, or you're going to see the light go on and that's going to be wonderful, you know, to see somebody kind of get it and connect with it. I used to love teaching the wasteland by T.S. Eliot because I would take them through it line by line um, and explain the illusions and metaphors and things that are kind of buried in there. And they never really understood how deep poetry could be and how much meaning could be packed into something like that. And when they finally sort of get it, they have a whole new appreciation for poetry after that. And I'm like, my job is done. <laughs> you know, did, did you did you feel like you kind of stood up there and were able to kind of, you know, looking out at a classroom of students? Did you do you feel like did you that you were able to watch kind of the light go on in their eyes when they figured something out? Yeah, but at least for some things like that, they really liked that stuff. And of course, they loved the the mythology and things like that, too. And, um you know, that, that was always a lot of fun. 
And uh, once in a while, you would get somebody who would actually really enjoy their Shakespeare. And so uh, that was always fun when you found the kid who was really into the language like that. So uh, I, I do miss that uh, part of it. And uh, I know it's got to be super, super hard to be a teacher right now. Uh, not beat all the pandemic has made things infinitely worse. And um, in a lot of cases, I don't see that governments are trying to make things easier for teachers. Um, and so uh, I, I, I have, uh, you know, my heart goes out to all the teachers and all the kids, you know, all the parents of kids in school right now who are having a tough time uh, worrying about whether sending their kid to school is going to result in them getting ill. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's super rough out there at this point. My kid is in college, but doing a lot of it online. And so uh, luckily they've been, you know, really safe, but I know that it's not been easy for everybody and hopefully the vaccine stuff is going to get uh, approved soon and kids will be safer. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, gosh, I, one of my good friends is a, is a high school teacher now and he, and we, we talk most days, you know, just chatting online. We've got a kind of a, mm-hmm. a group chat for a bunch of us old high school buddies and talking to him about just the ways things have changed in gosh, I don't know what the 17 years since I was a high schooler. It's just, it feels like such a short amount of time, but like, you know, everything seems to have changed in that time, you know, smartphones now and social media now. And, and it just, do you, do you feel like maybe you dodged a bullet with the, with missing out on the social media and smartphone stuff? Yeah. I mean, even when I was still teaching, uh, there was quite a bit of, Hey, I'm always texting somebody, you know, uh, you know, there, there was what to do with cell phones was, um, always a problem. Um, probably the biggest behavioral problem that you had to deal with was like, you know, some kid doing something with a phone uh, instead of, you know, paying attention to whatever they're supposed to be doing at that moment. And there was never a really, you know, the administration kept changing its mind on what would be you know, the best policy to follow. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I, I uh, don't have to deal with some of that stuff anymore, but uh, I do think that we should be paying attention quite a bit to, the, the education stuff, because it's, it's obviously the lack of attention to it for many, many years has resulted in the current state of affairs in the United States, where you have uh, a lot of people unable to discern what a fact is. Yeah. And that's, that's real rough. I, you know, like I, I've always been, I don't know, like I, when I, growing up, my, my dad was, when I was a really little kid, he was on the school board still. And, and they talked a lot about kind of like, you know, locally trying to deal with, you know, what parents want versus what the government wants versus what the teachers want to do and, um, and trying to get funding for everything. You know, I don't have children, but I will always vote for a levy for the school because I, I, you know, someday those people are going to be my doctors. They're going to be the people that, you know, run my old person's home. You know, I want them to be educated. I want them to know what life is like. Uh, and I, I don't know, I just, it always blows my mind when education isn't really like very important to people and ugh, some, sometimes it grosses me out, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm hoping that, uh, we're going to continue to see some improvements in that regard. Uh, up here, they do things much differently. Uh, and I'm still kind of getting used to it, but, uh, I will tell you this, one of the lovely things about, uh, Canada is that college is a third of the cost Whew. in of the United States. So um, when we were living in Colorado, uh, we were looking into what tuition would be for the University of Colorado at Boulder. And at that time, and remember this was, you know, about four years ago, mm-hmm. it was 24000 a year for tuition. So right now, 
we are paying uh, seven thousand a year in tuition. So it's a third of you know less than a third of the cost. That difference, and that's by the way, that's Canadian dollars. So in U.S. dollars, that's even less. So basically, my kid is going to be able to graduate college without a mountain of crushing debt, and that is a huge advantage right there um, that they are going to have uh, going forward. Uh, and I, I wish the United States would figure out what to do about college debt down there, uh, because I think it's holding back the entire economy. But the the um, that that's one of just many things that Canada is kind of doing besides the healthcare keeping people secure, um, and then having college be you know a reasonable amount. Um, you know, those are uh, some really concrete things that they're doing to. Uh, make life a little bit better for folks up here. And, and, and so I, I look at that and then look at the mess, you know, in the United States and, and go, you know, here's evidence that there are better ways to do things. And a lot of people are just unaware. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, the financial aspect that that's, that's crushing for younger generations, especially, you know, like I, uh, gosh, Michelle and I, I have a, a, a chronic physical illness. Michelle has a chronic mental illness and, are just you know in a, a pretty good insurance plan uh plus the extra on top cost to us it's 25 to thirty thousand dollars a year for the two of us and that is if we if we were both making minimum wage which a lot of you know mid-30s people still are uh w- that would be all of our money like literally all of our money and that it just blows my mind that this it, it's something that i look at and think this is not someday it's going to crack, you know, it's not sustainable for the younger generations. And, and, and I, I, I hope it doesn't crack badly. Well, yeah, I mean, pretty much at the, at this point, you have to be doing very well to be able to afford healthcare in the United States. Whereas in Canada, you, you have a higher tax rate here. If you, if you make, you know, more money um, and that goes, that's where your healthcare is coming from. So you might be paying, you know, more, but I don't mind because it's not for profit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I'm paying the government and it's going to help other Canadian citizens and it's not helping some rando shareholder get richer, you know, from an insurance company. That's a huge, just like a moral difference to me that healthcare is not for profit here. And, you know, there aren't people who are getting wealthy, making life and death decisions for others. I love that part of it. It it helps me sleep it. <laughs> and that's huge. You know, like it's, you know, we don't, I, I, and this can wrap back just to education that we were talking about is, is, is these things don't have to be couched in terms of you dirty commies. You know, it can be couched in terms of, you know, compassion and planning for the future and, you know, like really understanding how these systems work and how, you know, trying to help, you know, new people, you know, younger people that are coming up into these systems. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's tough when the only perspectives you get are the ones that are very fiery and, you know, like, Oh, we, you know, we can't stand those, those people that want to share everything. You know, it's like, look, I'm not a, I'm not a Soviet communist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that is true. Yeah. And, And this is the value of travel, honestly. If you, if you get out of your little bubble and start to see that there are different ways of living and doing things, um, then you're, you're just going to be better off and you're going to be more compassionate and, and be more empathetic with people who have views different yeah. than yours. Um, and it, it just makes you a better human. So I, I think I think the freedom of travel would be 
um, beneficial for everybody instead of being, I mean, a rail, a national rail system would be wonderful in the United States if we had, you know, the high speed rail thing that a lot of other countries have managed to do. Oh. Uh, it, it would be wonderful to have that in the U.S. Uh, it really would. I, I mean, I would, I would do yeah. it just for recreation, you know, like just to see yeah. the whole country would be amazing. Uh, it's that, that's the type of thing that like, I know that you can, there's, there's some, there's some rail systems that work more or less, but a real high speed rail across the middle of the country, I would, yeah, I would every year I would take a week on a, on a sleeper cabin and just see the country. And I think that'd be so cool. Yeah. Uh, my, my experiences on trains have been entirely positive. I, uh, and I only recently, you know, started to, to do that. And, um, I'm actually hoping, I mean, this is not a for sure thing by any means, but I'm really hoping to be able to put together some sort of train tour um, of the East and Midwest um, for March. Oh, yeah. Uh, because uh, and taking a train is, is cheaper than flying and you don't have the TSA groping mm-hmm. you every day. Um, so... I and then you get to to work comfortably versus a very narrow, you know, cramped space on a tube where you can't open a window. So, yeah, I mean, I would rather be on a train at this point. I get to work, I get to uh, be relaxed and I, I I don't feel suffocated and stuff like that, you know, on the train. So, I think I want to put together a train tour uh, for this uh, reissue, perhaps of the Iron Druid, and uh, we'll—I don't know if I can make it happen or not, but um, I'd love to be able to do that because uh, I get to see the country, and, and, and it's cheaper than uh, flying, and, uh, and and less, you know, of a hassle, less of a stress, and so yeah, but that that'd be wonderful. It, it won't be high school, <laughs> right? But it'll be it, at least it, it exists and it's doable. So oh, that sounds wonderful. Well. I always like to kind of wrap up these episodes by asking each person what the last meal that just blew your mind was. What's the last thing that you ate that you still think about no matter how long ago it was? Okay. Uh, it, it was really this place in, in Minneapolis. Um, it, it, it was called the butcher and the boar and it's, it closed down during the pandemic, but it has recently reopened same location, but they with a slightly different name, and I don't know why they had to change the name. But okay, but it's basically the same restaurant. It's now called the Butcher's Tale, T A L E, and uh, they they age their own meat. They cut their own meat and age it there. They have their own charcuterie that they make, and then they have the most amazing drinks, Brian. And then uh, you get a New York that's been aged. Uh, for 40 days and these mushrooms that they put on it. And Oh my God, it's the most amazing meal. And I went there with Delilah uh, S Dawson and uh, for our tour. And that was the last time. And honestly, this train tour that I'm talking about taking in March, it ends in Minneapolis specifically. So I can go back to that restaurant. (laughs) Uh, And and because somebody tweeted, this is this seriously the whole thing. Like somebody tweeted at me, they knew that I I was just obsessed with this restaurant. 
and they said it's back open again. Look, here's the link, and I check it out, and there's the menu. It's just slightly tweaked here and there, a few new recipes. Uh, but but I mean, I'm like, oh my god, it's back. I got to go back to Minneapolis. How can I get back there? Well, hey, maybe I could do something in March. So yeah, it's also that I could go back to this one place. And so if you ever get a chance to go to Minneapolis, Brian, go to the Butcher's Tail. Have one. They had a a Delilah had a banana old fashioned. You're like, what? It, it, it was amazing, and then they have a they have a butter pecan old fashioned uh, that I can't wait to try. It's on the menu now, uh, and uh, yeah, it, incredible steak, incredible uh, drinks. Uh, yeah, best meal. What, what about you? I'm, I'm kind of curious. Like, what was your amazing meal? Man, you know what i i I've spent most of the pandemic cooking for ourselves. We uh, yeah. we um, will will occasionally get takeout. So earlier on in uh, this summer, kind of after uh, after vaccines became really available, uh, my parents decided that they were going to drive from Ohio. And I decided I hadn't seen my parents for a while. I decided I was going to go all out. Uh, I got a um, a full sized like uh, a full size beef tenderloin, <laughs> and I it was it was no joke like a hundred and seventy five dollar piece of meat. I was trying to I was really trying to spoil my dad. Okay, and so I got <laughs> this beef tenderloin and I smoked it and I I nailed oh. it. I absolutely nailed it. <laughs> I don't even remember what the sides were. I I put together a really good spread, but that beef tenderloin I still think about that what you know five months later or whatever. It was so dang good. Yeah, there you go. When you get something amazing like that, yeah, it does it does stick around. You wanna wanna go there again. So that was fantasy author Kevin Hearn. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on to chat. You can find links to Kevin's social media and his books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at Brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson and Patrick Hunt for their backing on Patreon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 